Welcome to the Positively Past, Positively Present podcast. My name is Kat Lowe, and I'm a researcher practitioner in the field of arts and health, and I've been collaborating with Positively UK since 2016. This series of podcasts came about through a project we've been doing looking at Positively Women's archive, where we've been looking at the power of the archive to allow us to look back in order to be able to move forward. On the podcast each week, we'll speak with different guests who have been connected with Positively UK, both past and present. We explore different themes relating to the experience of women living with HIV. All of these have been recorded online as we wanted to include a wide range of voices, both safely and across borders. The nature of these conversations cover topics that some listeners might find difficult. So we invite you to please consult the episode's show notes before listening to the podcast. And finally, huge thanks to colleagues both at Positively UK and the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama who've helped bring these podcasts together. We hope you find these discussions illuminating and insightful. Welcome to the Positively Women Past and Present podcast. I'm Kat Lowe, and today I'm joined by Joe Manchester and Rebecca Mbewe. Joe was the co-founder of the International Community of Women Living with HIV. She then worked as a freelance consultant for numerous international development organisations focusing on gender and HIV. She is now the coordinator for Candy Network, which supports services for people living with HIV in Camden and Islington. Rebecca is one of the directors of the 4M Mental Mothers Network, which was originally a project under the Salamander Trust. She also works as the GROWS Training Project Coordinator at Positively UK, a project that looks at issues that affect women and ageing. In today's episode, we're talking about gender and HIV. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Jo, where are you speaking to us from? I'm in my front room in Cambridge. Lovely, thank you. And Rebecca, where are you? Thank you, Catherine. I am in a lovely little village called East Harling in Norfolk. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, to begin, Joe, I'd love to hear about your connection with Positively Women. Positively Women means such a lot to me. It was completely life-changing. I was diagnosed with HIV in 1986, before Positively Women existed, and it took me a while to find it because I went overseas, basically some at some point in early 1989, I travelled down from Manchester with a, another woman that I'd met there and we, um, we went to London and met these amazing women and for the first time we found peer support and we found people that understood what we were going through that we could just talk to and be with and yeah it was amazing so from that point on I was a member but I wasn't living in London so I would just whenever I was in London I would drop in they had wonderful drop-ins on Thursday evenings where you could just go and chat and relax and and I made many of my best friends there you know so it, it means it means the world to me it changed my life Thanks, Joe. And you, Rebecca? Thank you, Catherine. Positively UK for me, as Joe says, is a life changer. It's been my support network. It was the first place I went to for peer support in 1996 when I was diagnosed. 
And once you're in, it's very difficult to get out. So yeah, the rest is history. Thank you, both of you, for sharing that. Joe, the ICW was established in 1992. How did it come about? It came about because there was a conference in Amsterdam, a World AIDS conference was being held, and a group of Dutch women organised to fundraise to bring together women from all over the world to attend a workshop in the woods for five days before the conference. So we were 57 women from 24 countries who came together. For me, it was really groundbreaking because I'd really realised that there's there was nothing to be ashamed of, you know, there was nothing to feel guilty about. This is, you, you know, we were just unlucky, you know, but it really helped me to just kind of move past that and to begin to, you know, start speaking about it and and getting really actively involved, you know, not not talking about myself as such, but just talking about women's issues was was really, really important. We sat for a couple of days brainstorming all the things that women with HIV need. And we, we came up with a huge list, flip charts all over the room, at like over 100 different points, which a few incredible women managed to condense into what became known as the 12 statements. And actually, many of those statements are still really um, relevant today. You know, not they're maybe not the language we'd use today, but the sentiment behind them. Yeah, I'd I'd pretty much stand by all of them. And so at the opening ceremony of the conference, um, the women stood up on the stage and one woman read out the 12 statements. It was really the first time that women had were visible at an international conference on HIV. So it was quite momentous. Um, then we all went home. Kate Thompson and I set up the coordinating office, again, thanks to Positively Women, because they gave us a desk and a telephone and let us use the fax machine. And we had no money, you know, we were just doing it, you know, we couldn't have done it without Positively Women. Um, we were basically just a network supporting one another. Then as there were conferences coming up, we were, you know, if there was a conference somewhere, we would, you know, support women from different countries to get there, to speak there. And it just grew from that, really. You, you know, in the early days, we had nothing. I remember women would write to me and I would sit and write replies, you know, so you'd spend an hour writing a letter and then you'd post it. And, you, you know, many women couldn't even afford paper and stamps. You know, some of the first money we got, we sent out to, for paper and stamps. You know, it was, it was a very different age in those days. The thing that I'm really hearing and which echoes so closely I think to your experiences, Rebecca, is that female friendship, that female support in that moment. Rebecca, I know that you're part of the Making Waves Collective, which is this wonderful international, intergenerational, intersectional feminist collective of women who work together around gender equity, gender-based violence, HIV. And one of the things that really stands out in the organisation is this idea of a feminist friendship. And could you tell us a bit about why it was important to start this collective and what does a feminist friendship look like for you? I hope I can do it justice. I think the reason this was important to sort of put together was precisely because of the issues around gender, you know, for women. Fortunately for me, by the time I was being diagnosed, I had this 
backdrop of amazing women that had already started the conversations around this. But the challenges include things like um, most of the research is done on men. So therefore, even though we are taking the treatment, we're still trying to work out and unpick what those challenges are for women in terms of side effects and how we respond to that treatment. Because biologically, we're not designed the same as men. That's one issue. Um, when we talk about gender-based violence, for example, some of these women were diagnosed antenatally. You're the first person that gets to hear about your diagnosis does not necessarily mean you're the first person to bring it, but that then has a ripple effect in terms of you have to go and tell your partner, your husband, whoever it is. And based on your circumstances, that might just increase the risk of you being impacted by gender-based violence. Some women are here on a spousal visa, for example, a lot of the women that I've worked with. So they rely on their partners for finance or for um, immigration status. What happens to those women? So all of those are the challenges that are faced because you are a woman. Um, and I guess making waves, make sure that these issues remain on the top of the agenda. And, and Joe's right, the same things that were quite relevant those many years ago are still very relevant today. I, can I just say, I think that's such a that's such a good point. I remember so many women in the network were always said, you know, that they were blamed because they brought AIDS home, you know, because they were tested first, they were tested in pregnancy. The, the other thing, you know, in many countries, women are much more visible because often men were, you know, wouldn't test and... But if a man died first, then the woman's status automatically became known by everybody. So they couldn't they couldn't hide their diagnosis when their husband had just died. The people that you met that were open or members of support groups, you know, they, they were mostly women. And that's one thing I really, really loved about ICW, because when we were at Amsterdam, um, you know, Kate and was talking a lot about positively women and and people went home wanting to set up the same kind of organizations in their countries on the positively women model and women set up Nicola in Uganda and Wofak in Kenya and organizations in in Argentina and Chile and just all over the place Malawi NAPAM the National Association of People Living with HIV and AIDS in Malawi was started by Winnie who was in Amsterdam and went home and set it up you know she she worked in a bank and she you know her husband had died she had nothing left to lose and I think that's that's the other thing you know these these women had nothing left to lose. Joe, can I just say what you're describing is my story. I was 12 years married when I got my diagnosis. And the only reason we went for a test was because my partner was always ill. My husband was always ill. And therefore they recommended go for an HIV test. I was walking fine, looking fine. I didn't get ill. And I found out that way and I still got blamed for it. He's passed on now. And I'm still around picking up the pieces. I've still got my two children that I need to bring up. But And you're absolutely right. You get to the point as a woman where you think, I have nothing else to lose. 
It's either fight or die. And that's that's the thing about women, the resilience that they have is influenced by all of those experiences, um, which are very often because of our gender. So yeah, I, I, I hear you entirely when you when you describe that it is a common theme amongst all women, amongst most women, regardless of where you come from. Thank you both. I wanted to turn to the statements. So in 1992, when the ICW Collective took to the stage in Amsterdam, 12 statements were read out, all of which today are acutely relevant. But there are two in particular I want to draw your attention to and ask a bit more about. The first one is, we need the media to portray us realistically and not stigmatise us. And the second is, we need recognition of the fundamental human rights of all women living with HIV, particularly women in prisons, drug users and sex workers. These fundamental rights should include the right to housing, employment and travel without restrictions. I mean, at the time, you know, in 1992, you remember what the media was like. This is a bit of an offside, but I remember the first meeting I ever went to at the WHO in Geneva. I was invited as a as a co-founder of ICW and I sat in a meeting in Geneva and there must have been, you know, 15, 20 people sitting around the table. I was the only woman living with HIV, but all of the others were working on women living with HIV, which I thought fantastic. They were all working with sex workers. And, you know, it's it's really important to work with sex workers, obviously, but they didn't seem to conceive of the idea that any other type of woman could be affected at that time. Yeah, it really struck me sitting there at the WHO that, that this is this is how we're seen. And so women were either seen as sex workers or drug users. And, and actually, the thing about Positively Women is I really learned that it really doesn't matter. You know, all of that stuff is completely irrelevant. We're just all living with HIV and that's what we have in common. And we all come from different backgrounds and the vast majority of us acquired it through unprotected sex in one way or another. You know, that's the media at that time just thought it was something very that you'd done something different. You know, they weren't questioning whether am I having unprotected sex, you know, Everything was put on the person who was diagnosed with HIV, the responsibility for not passing it on, the the blame, the everything. Whereas nobody was thinking, oh, I've had unprotected sex, maybe I should go and get a test. Or, um, And I think the media really fueled that. And it wasn't until many years later that women began to be portrayed as just women living normal lives and... and coping with an HIV diagnosis at the same time. I'm going to say to that, that we've come a long way because of women that have gone before us to be very clear, precisely because of those statements, you know, look at us as women um, and portray us in the way that we are, that we want to be portrayed or should be portrayed. It's from work, from organizations like NAT, they pull up the media, every article that's printed with the right language and you know the right approach. So a huge amount of work has been done to change 
perceptions to change attitudes. But I also think a huge amount of work still needs to be done because depending on the area that you're in or where you're coming from, people may still carry the same perceptions that, you know, HIV is only for people who are promiscuous or, um, you know, they still hang on to the old uh, sort of beliefs and myths. Um, and that's no longer true. So whilst we've done a lot of work in the area, there's still a hell of a lot more work that needs to be done. I, I also think, you know, when the um, programme It's a Sin was broadcast, uh, looking at the early days of HIV, it, it's a brilliant drama, brilliantly acted, but there were no women and it just made, it brought back all the memories of just being invisible, unseen, misunderstood. And, and, and then all the media attention that surrounded that, there were still no women. And I found that whole time so difficult and so triggering, you know, it just brought back so much. Both of you described the importance of drawing attention to the historical overlook of women experiences, women's knowledge of what it meant to live with HIV, especially in the 80s and 90s. And up till very recently, there's been such limited attention and focus, which is part of the reason for this work. Both of you had a significant impact and have advocated for an extremely long time about better involvement of women in decision making around HIV, both in terms of funding and research. Could you talk to me a bit about that, please? I'll give you a very good example. I'm sitting or coordinating with a colleague on the GROWS project. What we've done is involved women right from the beginning. So this is a project that's run by women living with HIV for women living with HIV. And it has worked really well because right through the process, everything that's been done has been informed by these women. And therefore the end result caters for the women and it caters for them properly. Um, you don't have a waste of resources or a waste of time because you actually involve the people that it affects right from the beginning. My particular passion, um, well, one of my passions was around um, women's reproductive rights. You know, we've, we've come a long way. We've come a long way in HIV with treatment, but we've, you know, and that has really enabled us to come a long way in our reproductive rights. So... You know, in the 90s, um, when when women became pregnant, they would be in, in many places, you know, vilified for becoming pregnant. Women were undergoing forced terminations, were being sterilised without their consent. It was a very terrible time for many women in many countries. And then, on the other hand, women were also under pressure from their families to become pregnant, you know, so women didn't have a choice, a choice to become pregnant or a choice not to become pregnant. You know, they were just, mm. yeah, it was a very, very difficult time. And we, you know, we started talking about this. And actually, you know, when you're told don't get pregnant, that affects you on so many different levels. With the advent of treatment, we realised quite quickly that once a woman had an undetectable viral load, that she was not likely to pass the virus onto her child. And it took a really long time for the medical community to catch up with that. But I think women's voices have really, really brought about that change, you know. And so 
you know, eventually, you know, guidelines have changed and some hospitals have HIV specialist midwives now. And, you know, now we know that women don't have to have cesarean sections and they can, you know, if the labour's going normally, they can have a normal birth. Um, you know, we, we're also talking about breastfeeding, you know, because it's really important to have these conversations, not just say no. And for a long time, women were just shut down and no, you can't even think about that. You can't talk about that. Um, but we did and we've, we've, we've been pushing and it takes a really long time to push those doors open. But now women, hopefully women with HIV do have many more options if they do wish to become pregnant. And but it's been a real battle. But if it hadn't been for the women speaking out about it, I'm not sure we'd be there yet. Completely. Thank you, Joe. One of the things you've both spoken a bit about is the toll of being an HIV activist, taking up space, making space for other women. Can you talk to me a bit about your experiences, please? I think like many women, I fell into activism. You know, it wasn't a choice. It was just, we didn't really have other options. We were all getting ill. Many of us were dying. It, it was a really, really turbulent time. I remember, you know, we were living in London in the 90s. We were going to so many funerals and, you know, we'd sit in the, in the pub afterwards and talk about what music we'd have at our funerals. We didn't know, you know, it could have been any of us next. It was, it was... In a way, that kind of just gave us a strength just to carry on, you know, because like there's nothing else to do. You know, we didn't know how much time we had left. So we just we just carried on. I became very passionate about HIV and it became my work and my life. It was my identity. And so, yeah, so when I became like a professional working in HIV, I never really felt very professional. But when I, you know, when I was working in it, I I cared I was very passionate but it's all consuming you know you don't get you don't get a time off you don't kind of you don't close the door and think about something else because it's always with you it's always always there it's not something you can you can walk away from I I can I recognize very much what Joe is saying I think when you initially get your HIV diagnosis that in itself is a trauma so you go through these stages where you think right uh you know, it's confirmed, I'm now living with HIV, what do I do with this? I started off living two parallel lives, so I did my professional job, and then there was my personal job, which a lot of women do. And then I got to the point where I got really tired of the rat race, if you, if you like, and I decided to go back to school. And it was from that point, I decided to become more involved with HIV work I started off volunteering and then a role came up and I got a role as a peer support worker which went swimmingly well so I had lots of energy to give I was really passionate because I could relate to women's experiences in terms of you know exactly what they were going through but what I would like to bring to the fore is that because of funding what then started to happen was there were fewer and fewer roles of women providing the support. So therefore you carried more work. Your caseload got bigger. Funders needed to see 
you doing this and achieving this with a really small budget, with a very small team, the workload doesn't stop and you're still getting um, referrals. And I think that contributes to the burnout because you can't stop, particularly as somebody who's also walked the journey. If someone calls you and tells you they're from a borough that's not funded, tell them you can only give them this support. I'm not going to do that because I know I've been there. I've done, you know, I've walked that journey. You want someone to be able to talk to you. You can't sit there and tell someone, oh, you're not from a funded borough, so I can't provide you with support. And for me, that's what contributed to the burnout. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, I can't do this anymore and I needed to step out. So I think there's a balance in making sure that positions are funded, peer support positions are funded, because I think even now, the recognition of how important that peer support is, is not fully there. We're still having to try and convince people the huge difference it makes. We've spoken to it. We've learned, you know, we are where we are because of peer support. I'm here because of women like Joe and whoever started before me. And if I hadn't had that connection, I probably would have walked a very different journey. So those roles need to be paid. Those roles need to be supported to prevent people from having burnout. You know, people need to recognize that funding is really important for, for people who do the job. Completely, thank you. What advice would you give someone who's experiencing burnout? And for you, Joe, what brought you back into HIV activism? and work burnout is a really tough thing it, it's it's two little words but it's massive when, when I was diagnosed there wasn't any counseling or anything like that you know and so and I think when you're young you kind of just have this kind of resilience you know and I didn't actually really and, and then the peer support kicked in and, and that really helped me a lot and I thought that was all I needed and it wasn't until years later about 10 years ago I that I actually went for therapy and I was diagnosed with PTSD and I had an amazing therapy called EMDR the eye movement desensitization reprocessing I mean it was agony it was awful um but that really helped me and and actually after I had it I became came quite evangelical about it and I was talking to women who you know kind of my generation who'd been through similar things and I know a, a few other women sought that out where they live and it really helped them too and I think you know what we've been through was massive so yeah I, I would just say take time take time to find the therapy that can help you or just time to time to find the space to look after yourself what brought me back is that this is so much part of my identity. You know, I'm 57 now. I've lived with this all of my adult life. And I'm living outside London and and I miss that community, you know, in London that I had. And, you know, the global network that I was involved in. And so by getting back involved again, it's just... I'm really enjoying reconnecting with other people and and I'm in a 
much stronger place now and um you know I'm not doing the level of work you know it's not that kind of same level of work that I was doing before but for me it is a really important part of my identity and I cherish it and I you know I I I cherish the fact that I'm still alive and that I'm going to be an old lady hopefully and you know and um yeah I'd quite like to be an old activist big love Rebecca when when I think back to my own sort of burnout, um, I think two things stand out. I think if you're doing the work in a formal capacity, it's important to have what we refer to as supervision. So you've always got someone, whether it's your manager or external supervision, embedded within your role. And I think that speaks to many roles, whether you're a nurse or a carer or whoever else, because those are roles that require a lot of emotion Mm -hmm. and a lot of giving out. So you need somewhere that you can offload to. So that's really important. And I think as you grow older as well, you start to recognize, right? You, You recognize your limits. You start to learn to know how to say no a little bit more when you're younger it's exactly what joe says you think yeah bring it on i can do that you can't you need support professionally um whether it's in the form of therapy or just supervision but also recognizing within yourself that right i'm getting to the point where i'm starting to feel a bit fizzled out i need to take a step back have somebody to speak to about it whether it's your manager and saying, I'm having a hard time dealing with this one. Um, Is there somebody else that can do it? So it's being fully conscious, being fully aware of your own needs, as well as everything else around you. Um, And if you've got a supportive network, yeah, I think you can just about chug along. I think just by nature, women have this, sense of always being the ones giving out giving out um i think we need to learn that it's not being selfish when we take time out for ourselves it's actually being selfless and the more you are good on your own feet and in your own body the more you can actually give back you don't have to get to the point where your drum is completely empty um, because then you don't have anything to give back legend Thank you. So I'm going to turn to our last question, which is specifically thinking about what from the past you are going to bring into your future. What's the one thing you're going to take from your past that is going to inform your future? I hope that I can take that resilience. I think as we age, that's what we need. (laughs) And so, yeah, I hope I can find that and take that with me. Awesome. Thanks. And you, Rebecca? The lessons we have learned about how important peer support is. I think it is the one thing that has carried us through. It's the one thing that has enabled us to live the 20 years or the 20 odd years that I've been living with HIV in an optimistic way. That's one thing. And I would bring the wisdom that we've learned from, from, you know, previous women that have walked the journey, the recognition 
that it's important to continue to speak up because that's what then informs the future, everything that we, we've learned in the past. Thank you both so very much for your time, for your sharing your experiences with us with such openness and candor. It has been truly a delight to speak to you both and thank you for sharing it with us. Absolute pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. If you are affected by anything shared in the podcast, please see the Positively UK website for a list of their services and other support organisations. I've been Kat Lowe. These podcasts have been edited by Chuck Blue Lowry, coordinated with Joy and Solidarity by Mariam Shaharadine and Chriselle Ducousin, music by Jessica Roach.